0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. Forgive me, it's Psalm 3. Put on one there, Psalm 3. And we will read it at near the end of the sermon, okay? Blame it on jet lag, okay? Last Sunday, we began looking at the matter of the psalms and prayer. As we saw last Sunday, and we've seen this before, we are creatures that pray. It has been required. We are also creatures that require tools. And one could make the argument, and many have, that prayers are, in fact, tools. Um, They certainly have been seen that way, but they are not intended uh, to be used as something, to be used to get what we want or to have something happen. Rather, they are tools that are to shape us and reshape us into what we should become. Prayers are tools that God uses to work his will in our lives. And we collaborate with him and we do that as we pray. If it is the case that prayers are tools, then the book of Psalms is the essential toolbox. We have the best tools available here in this book of 150 psalms. And what we see is that it is not essential that we learn how to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. Because after all, God has spoken and we answer in prayer. And the psalms teach us how to do that. Last week we looked at Psalms 1 and 2, which sort of paved the way. They opened the door. It is interesting that a book full of prayers begins with two psalms that are not prayers. Um, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are not prayers, but they are in fact psalms that prepare us to pray. We are not really ready to pray, I think, on our own. We are too wrapped up in ourselves. We are knocked about by our circumstances, the pushing, shoving, the demands of the world. We are harassed within and without, as Paul would tell us. And I think it is a bit much for us to expect that we can go from this high stimulus world into a place of quiet meditation and prayer and conversation with God. In prayer, we leave the world of anxieties, or we're supposed to, and enter a world, a place of wonder. We leave an ego-centered world to a God-centered world. And we leave a world of problems to enter a world of mystery. That's easier said than done because we are used to anxieties. We are used to egos. We are used to problems. We are not as used to wonder or to God Himself or to mystery. These two psalms together, Psalms 1 and 2, are a pair, and I think they need to go together. They prepare us. We never get past this, by the way. We never get past the need for preparation to pray. I've said this many times, but for me, sort of the image that always comes into mind when I think of people praying is of Kramer and Seinfeld, how he would always sort of scoot into Jerry's apartment, and I think oftentimes we just sort of rush into God's presence without any thought uh, or any concern. We've not prepared ourselves, and Psalms 1 and 2, in fact, do prepare us. What we hear in Psalm 1 is of God's law, as we saw last week, the word that is used for Torah. Or the word for Torah also means a javelin, something that is thrown at a particular target. And we are that target. And God hits us with the truth of his word and then we respond in prayer. Or we're supposed to. As we see in Psalm 2, some people do not respond in prayer. They respond in rebellion. They want to break off and to cast off the chains that God's word puts on them. Today I want to look at two more aspects as we sort of begin to get into the book of Psalms. One is the text and the other is the language of the Psalms. Let's talk about the text. You know, when somebody speaks to you, as I'm speaking to you right now, um, it's fairly easy, I think, to pick up a feel for what is intended by how the words are said or the intonation or the the pitch, uh, the cadence. But when words are written down on a page... We don't have that voice, and we have to compensate for the lack of voice. And so we look at how the words are arranged. Is there something that is being intended that, since the person's not speaking it, we're reading it, that we can understand what they mean. This is the texture of the text. The book of Psalms is a collection of poems, a collection of prayers, and this is the texture of the text. Yeah, for a lot of us, and I think I would include myself, we see poetry almost as a nuisance. It's sort of like, you know, frou It's like decorative language. You know, why don't you just say what you mean? You know, why do you have to do all this flowery language? But in fact, poetry is, I think, intense personal conversation. It's not cosmetic. It comes from the heart. It comes from the, your guts, if you wish. Um, It doesn't tell us something we don't know. I think that's the key. It doesn't tell us what we don't know, but rather it tells us what we already know in a different way. It reminds us of something we may have forgotten or put aside or suppressed. This is what we find in the book of Psalms. As you go through the Psalms, you will notice that time after time, they'll refer to things that happened before. We already know that. Yes, but now they put it in a different way, and the language is different. Prayer is the language that is used in personal communication with God. God speaks to us, and we answer in prayer. And our answers are not always positive. As you go through the Psalms, you hear anger and skepticism and curses. Uh, Eugene Peterson, whose book has been a great help to me, uh, has one chapter entitled Praying Our Hate. Because there are certainly psalms, uh, prayers in the book of Psalms that seem to be filled with hate. and, And what are we to do about that? But poetry reminds us what we have forgotten. The Psalms remind us what we have forgotten. Oftentimes what we have forgotten about God. But in the process, they train us how to respond. They train us how to pray to God. There are three conditions or three backstories, if you wish, that are necessary for us to understand the book of Psalms. Um, you see, I think a lot of people read the book of Psalms and they have no concern whatsoever for the context. They imagine, you know, I'm going through difficult times and, and indeed people have come to me and say, listen, uh, Damon, can you tell me you know, I'm going through this? What is a good psalm to read? Um, as though the backstory or the conditions behind it have nothing to do with it. Um, I said, no, we have to look at these things, the backstory of the book of Psalms. There are three things. The first is the theology. The most important aspect of this is the reality of God. Without God, the Psalms do not exist. And it is amazing to me that people who are atheists still would love to quote the Psalms. Uh, He is the one who makes himself known. Therefore, he is the one that we know, which means we use our minds to think about him and we respond to him. People of faith use their minds to understand who God is and how he works. But this is not the way most people think today. I think today most people would approach the book of Psalms psychologically because we have all these variety of human experiences. We have despair. We have joy and everything in between. And so if we're not careful, our approach will be, well, what was the psychological state of the psalmist when he wrote this? And then some people would take it a step further and say, well, isn't prayer just a matter of psychology? After all, it makes you feel better when you pray. Um, no, the book of Psalms is not written, it's not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They weren't looking for the meaning of life. They prayed to God, whom they understood have everything to do with their lives. God, not their feelings, was the center of their existence. God, not their souls, was the issue. And God, not the meaning of life, was critical. Now, feelings and soul and the meaning of life, these are not excluded. They're very much in evidence, as we will see. But they are not the reason for these prayers. The psalmist does not pray so that he will be able to express his feelings or to find out the meaning of life. Human experience may provoke prayers, but they do not condition them as prayers. They're not prayers because we're trying to find out more about ourselves. The psalmists are passionate about God. The God who shapes our obedience, the God who transforms our wills, who revokes and reviles our sins, The God who causes us to praise Him. The Psalms come from a people who hear God speak to them and they realize it is the most important thing they will ever hear in their life. That God has spoken to them. And they decide to respond, they answer. Because they have heard from God, this takes precedence over every human word, over every human piece of wisdom or advice over every human inquiry. When you compare what the Hebrews did, like with the Babylonians and the Greeks, who certainly built, we would say, bigger empires and greater structures, the reality is the people who wrote the book of Psalms made their mark not by understanding themselves or studying what they saw around them, but by praying to God. God the God who had revealed himself. They knew that God had invaded their history. They knew that God had addressed them. They respond to his presence. They answer what he had to say to them. In other words, in short, they prayed. Let's be clear, though. It's not that they believed in a supreme being. It's like, oh, there's the big guy upstairs, you know, some all-powerful being. It was not a belief that there was a deity that they had to deal with, that there's someone who's more powerful than us, so somehow we have to placate him or understand him or what's going on. It's not that at all. But let's not say that the Hebrews or the Israelites understood God, because we are human after all, and there was much they did not know about him. But some things they did know. They knew that God had created the world. Read the book of Psalms. And you'll see that that is, comes up time and time again. That God entered into covenant with Abraham. That God delivered Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. That God gave the law through Moses. But they also know certain things were not true about God that God's not arbitrary. That God is not indifferent. And that God cannot be manipulated. What the psalmists do is they take the time and the trouble to find out what was revealed, to look at it and observe it closely to understand and to use their heads. And then they responded in prayer. History might be a puzzle. As a historian, I can affirm that that is true. And our our present situations may be unclear. But what the psalmists do is they respond to God who has revealed himself. So the book of Psalms are not conditioned by moods. What mood are you in here? Let me give you a psalm to read. No, they are conditioned by God's word. So first of all, it's God. Theology. If you don't believe in God, then please do not read the book of Psalms because they will mean something entirely different than what God intends. But secondly is the canon. That is scripture. The psalms are part of scripture. They have their own identity. There's 150 psalms and they make up one book, but they are one book among 66 books. The only way to understand the book of Psalms is to look at the other 65 books. And then you will have a context to look at these prayers that are found here. The book of Psalms, the individual Psalms, don't stand independently. They don't present themselves as, here we are, we don't need anything else. Many of the Psalms you will not understand at all if you don't know what's happened before. They are not scraps of paper that have been put in bottles and thrown out in the ocean from some distant land and suddenly it washes up on the beach and we read it and we're like, Oh, this is amazing, these wonderful words we have from the Psalms. We know the country that these prayers came from. We know quite a bit about the people who wrote them, who prayed them. We know what they experienced and what they hoped for, the battles that they fought, the marriages that they entered, the children that they raised. The cities they lived in, the rivers they crossed, the wells they drank from. We know quite a bit about the people who wrote the book of Psalms. And that's important because we need to understand that the Psalms are a part of scripture. Since they are not themselves by themselves, we need to make sure that we look at the context. Centuries of experience, grace and judgment, creation and chaos, guilt and salvation, Rebellion and obedience, these shape what we find in the book of Psalms. When we pray the Psalms, when we are trained by them to pray, we enter into an experience that is centuries long of being a part of the people of God. It's not that here we are in 2017 and this is so long ago. We enter into that experience with God's people. We didn't bargain for this though. See, I think we'd prefer to think of the book of Psalms as a, a prayer book um, that we can read and there's, there's there are Psalms when you're happy that you like to read and there are others when you're puzzled, some when you're in despair. Um, but that's not how it works. Instead of getting a small book of prayers, we have genealogies and we have stories, we have laws, we have dialogues, we have pithy sayings. We have all the things that we find in Scripture And these are incredibly important for us to understand as we go through the book of Psalms. What we find is that we are part of a large and rather noisy family throughout human history. The third thing, and this may strike you as strange, and I think it's because of when and where we live, and that is, you remember the saying of Jesus that when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst? These Psalms were meant to be read by the congregation, They are prayers for God's people as a community. As people assembled, as they were there before God, they prayed together and they prayed the Psalms. We see this not only in the time of Israel, but we see it in the New Testament church and ever since then. It is only, I think, in the last century or two that suddenly the the Psalms have become intensely individualistic. It's about me and my situation right now rather than the congregation gathering together. A congregation in which some may be hurting and others may be filled with joy. But together they come into God's presence and they pray the Psalms. They're not intended to be a private exercise, but a family convocation. See, prayer by itself is not automatically good. Oh, look at me, I'm praying, I'm doing something good. Um... Peterson has argued that solitary confinement is extreme punishment and solitary prayer or private prayer is extreme selfishness. That there is a place for private prayer, but somehow we have focused on that so much and even taking the book of Psalms as being a private prayer book that we have completely neglected public prayer or public worship. Now, Oftentimes, prayer begins when we are alone, when we have suffered, um, perhaps when we rejoice. But it shouldn't stay there. It may be that we pray on our beds at night, silently, secretly, maybe in public when we are surrounded by unbelievers, But it is the believing community, God's people, when we come together, this is the basis of prayer. This is the base of prayer. And certainly when we leave here today and we go to our homes, we will pray throughout the week as individuals. But it is because of what we do here in public worship that private prayer is possible. The history of God's people confirms this. It's only in the last century or two that we've lost sight of this. Now, let's be honest. This will hurt a bit. There are times when being in a group seems to diminish us. We'd rather be by ourselves. Um, There are times, however, when we're not feeling particularly up, if you wish, and we come with God's people and we are lifted up in prayer. So how, how do you work this? Well, the key is practice. It is God's will that we are to live as a congregation with lively exchanges of grace in a movement of love. And prayer is the primary way that we do this, as we pray as a congregation together. The Psalms train us to pray with others who have prayed and are praying, to join our voices with them in sorrow and lament, as well as praise. The primary use of prayer is not to express ourselves, but to become ourselves. And we cannot do that alone. Okay, that is the text of the Psalms. What about the language? So I mentioned earlier in the sermon and last week, Psalm 1 and 2 pave the way. They get us ready to pray. They're a pair. They have to be taken together. And we never get past the need for being prepared as we enter into God's presence with prayer. Now we come to Psalm 3. This is the first prayer in the book of prayers. Because Psalms 1 and 2 are preparation, they aren't actually prayers. And if you look at the first verse, the first line, O Lord, how many are my foes? Brief, urgent, one would even say frightened words. A person in trouble crying out to God for help. The language is personal, it is direct, it is desperate. It is the language of prayer. As human beings, the first communication, the first verbal, if you wish, communication we do is a wail or a cry. And babies don't know how to speak, but they know how to communicate. I need something to be fed, to be changed. I need warmth. I need to be held. We need help. We need someone else. We're unfinished. And a baby knows this, perhaps better than we do as adults. We've easily, so easily forgotten this. Language is the way we get what it is that we need, how we communicate, how we express what it is that we want. But language is almost mysterious to us as is prayer. One writer put it this way, it remains wonderful that mere puff of wind should allow men to discover what they think and feel, to share their attitudes and plans, to anticipate the future and learn from the past and to create lasting works of art. Puff of wind, as I speak, words come out and you understand me and somehow things are communicated. Language is used at many different levels for different purposes. But it has been argued that the language of prayer is the language of people who are in trouble and who know that god in fact can help them one person put it this way i only pray when i'm in trouble but i am in trouble all the time and so i pray all the time peterson has mapped out three different levels if you wish of language language 1 is the language of relationship of personal intimacy language 2 is that of information or description And language three is the language of motivation. Let me just talk about them briefly. Language one is the first language that we learn. Even when it isn't a language, when it isn't articulate, when it isn't speech, uh, consider the sounds that a child makes to his or her parent. You cannot conjugate the cries or the coos of a newborn baby. But a parent understands what is being said. And as a result of this exchange of sounds, trust develops. Language two is a language of information. And as children begin to grow up, they begin to point at things and we tell them what those are. That's a chair. That's a door. And they learn the language of information. This is the language that schools are built on in which information is communicated. Language three is that of motivation. Words that have the power to make things happen. Now, an infant can get attention by screaming. Okay? So, in some sense, they already know that. Um, a toddler or even an adult can throw a tantrum and try to get attention. But with language three, a word can bring change. You don't have to kick your heels. You don't have to wail. You simply say a word like stop and you get something done. This is the language, by the way, of politics and advertising in which people seek to motivate or manipulate people. In our culture, we barely do language one. It's all language two and three. It's about information and motivation, language that describes and language that controls. We know these languages. So it is not surprising that many times when we go to God in prayer, this is the language we use. We use the language of information that we're telling God as though he doesn't know what's going on in our lives or the lives of others. And then we somehow seek to control him by manipulating him to get him to do what it is that we want. In the meantime, the language of intimacy and relationship has been set aside the language that develops trust and hope and understanding has been left by the wayside after leaving the cradle and infancy behind we may in fact still experience language number 1 and I think in our teenage years when when people go through puppy love adolescent love um, this is as they learn to be intimate with other people but then after a while we become adults and then That seems to have been set aside and it's all about information and about manipulation. The book of Psalms uses language number one. It does language number two and three as well, but it begins with language number one, the language of relationship. You see, it is our heavenly father who loves us, who has called us and he calls on us to trust him calls on us to put our hope in him. So when we pray to God, it should be the language of intimacy and relationship that should dominate rather than that of information or control. Yes, it is important to describe as we are praying, we don't just simply wave our hands and say, God, you know what's going on. Um, That we, in fact, list and describe the things that are happening in our lives and the lives of others and that we speak to him of things we would like done but they only make sense in the language of relationship because otherwise if god is not our father then, then what's what's going on we're just we're we're trying to manipulate the supreme being to get us to, for him to give us what it is that we want without the language of relationship our language becomes thin very thin Language two is reduced to list making. Let's make a list of things that we want. And language three is reduced to manipulation. But we are more comfortable with information and control manipulation. This is what we know, this is what dominates our culture. And so, more than ever, we need to go back to the book of Psalms to relearn language one, which we knew when we were infants so that we might have a personal and intimate relationship with God who is our father we need to let the psalms train us in the language of intimacy and relationship psalm 3 as i said is the first actual prayer in the book of psalms and in it we hear language one follow along if you would as i read psalm 3 A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake up because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. The opening cry is, O Lord, how many are my foes? But it quickly moves to a lyric of trust. If you look at verse 3. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. The trouble that provokes his prayer is quite personal. The enemies that threaten David's life are numerous, they are aggressive, and they mock him. In the middle of the story we find, or in the middle of the psalm, we find a story in verses five and six, that David lies down, he falls asleep, he rises again, he is unafraid. Lord willing, we will look at this further. Next Sunday. Then in verse 7 we have two imperatives. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. (coughs) Now one could argue that imperatives are language three. That is a form of manipulation. Getting somebody else to do something for us that we are too lazy to do for ourselves. But what we find here is a call to God to do something that David himself cannot do. He can't rescue himself. And so he calls out to God to do this. And then, also in verse number 7, we have two indicatives. But in the NIV, they sound like imperatives. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. In reality, they are statements of fact. The ESV has, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. As Peterson puts it, The intense feeling in these words is exceeded only by their brutality. We need to understand something, that the first requirement of prayer is not that it be nice, that we want nice prayers, but that they be accurate. Prayers are oftentimes not very nice, as we will see in the book of Psalms. We need to recognize that there is a place for anger and judgment. Striking on the cheek breaking the teeth but this isn't the end of the prayer in verse number 8 we read from the Lord comes deliverance may your blessing be on your people we may pray when we get into trouble in the course of our praying our experience of wrong or being wronged becomes an experience of right that God makes things right the story is that of David fleeing from his son Absalom and he has confidence in his prayer that God will make things right. In writing about Psalm 3, Eugene Peterson notes, there is not an abstract word in this prayer. The nouns are specific. The verbs are direct. Everything is personal. God is personal. The one praying, that is David, is personal. The experience is immediate. The relationship is central because he, God is David's God, his Lord. And the emotion of terror and trust are expressed with force. That David is, in fact, afraid, and yet he trusts God. What we find in the Psalms is training. It moves us from talking about God, that's what theologians do, to talking to God. That's what people who pray do. We use all the languages available to us. Languages 1, 2, and 3. And we need to be competent competent in all of them. That as we speak to God, even as we list our complaints, perhaps, as we list our needs, or we speak of the things that have brought us great joy. Yes, language too is important. But it is the language of relationship, the language of a child, that in fact should lead the way. And we see this in the New Testament. There are a number of passages I could have chosen. But from Romans 8. Paul tells the Romans. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. One would say relationship. And by him we cry Abba Father. Abba being an Aramaic word. Which every family has their own version of. Papa. Dada? Daddy? Dad? Yeah, that's that's the language of prayer. That's where we should begin. And unfortunately, I think we have set aside the Psalms for far too long. And by God's grace, we'll come back to them and be trained in how it is we are to pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, living when and where we do, far too often, our prayers are marked by a sense of informing you as though you did not know what is going on. Or they're marked by an attempt at control, that we're trying to force the issue to get you to do what it is we want you to do. We can't do it, so we look to someone who is more powerful than us. But you are our Father. We are your children. By your grace, may we relearn the language of infancy, of relationship, of intimacy. Instead of imagining ourselves to be quite cultured and sophisticated um, and really beyond all of that stuff that is for children. You've revealed yourself as Father, not because we have fathers, but we have fathers because you are our Father, and we are your children, and you love us. You have spoken to us. You continue to speak to us. We just don't listen. And we pray in a way that I think is not always pleasing. As we saw last week, it is grace. It's always grace, no matter how well or how badly we pray, you hear us. You do love us. I ask, though, as a congregation, we would be retrained in how it is we are to pray as a congregation and as individuals. As we learn from the book of Psalms, from the Psalmist. May we join with the throng of your people over the centuries who answered you in prayer. We pray for those that aren't with us today because of sickness, that you would touch them. For those that will be traveling, you would give them safety. Above all, we pray for Tim and Kim, their upcoming wedding, that things would go well. And above all, you would be honored. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.